should be on. There we go. Cool. <laughs> Ooh. Hey, guys. How are you all going? I know there's not a lot of you, but that should have been a little bit louder. Anyway, um, <laughs> we'll get there. So, um, tonight we're going to be starting our series in Philippians. Um, so, we're going to look through this letter in its entirety. So, tonight we're going to intro it. I got given that privilege as Matt's on holiday and... Why not, right? It'll be fun. Um, so tonight we're going to start looking in Philippians 1, from 1 to 11. So I'm just going to read that now, then we're going to pray and we'll start going through it. So, um, from Paul and Timothy, oh, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my hearts and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you sharing God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may able to be dis- so you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to glory to the glory and praise of God. So that's a lot. Um, as an intro goes, it's actually interesting. I was doing some research in this, and this is kind of one of I'll get to it later, but there's a quote that talks about how, how different this is to how Paul normally intros things. This is actually talking very personally. So we're going to talk about a whole bunch of background information and context because I think it's really important, and then we're going to go through it a bit together. So before I get too far ahead of myself, I should pray. So if you join me. Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you now. I want to come before you and I want to take a second to still my heart and to remind myself and all of us that You are who you are, and we are here for you. So God, we just lift this word to you now. We pray that you would be with me as I speak, and with everyone here, that our hearts may be open to hear what you are going to say, including myself. And God, we just pray that you would be here working and growing us through this scripture. Amen. So, um, some of you guys may not know this, but I did an accounting degree before I went uh, went to Bible college. And something that actually came across both degrees, which I didn't expect to actually have a blend was learning about the context in which things have been written. So learning about the audience things are written to, learning about the author themselves, learning about all these things can be really important, whether scripturally, whether contracts, whether um, you're generating reports. It can be really important in a business to know who you're talking to, who you are, and all of these other things that make up how you're going to write this letter, report, whatever it is. So it kind of blended in through an ethics class where we got taught that um, text without the context is just a con, um, which is still one of my favorite quotes, quotes from my entire degree, and I use it often. Um, and then I went and studied hermeneutics, which is almost like the entire study of how, we're supposed to, how we read the Bible and how we learn about all these different things. So it's actually really cool to come across this um, mix between the two. Um, so I got given some questions, which we're actually going to go through a bit bit by bit, so if you don't remember all of them, it's okay, we'll go through them a couple of times. So, we get told to remember who wrote the letter and when, who the audience was, who it was written to, then we got told to look into what we know about them, what the relationship between the author and the audience was, and then we got told finally, which we're not going to spend a huge amount of time on tonight, but who we are as a reader, 
and how that influences things. Um, so, I figured how better to intro a series on this than to go through the contextual information of the entire letter and then read the intro together so that we can get a big picture of what Paul was trying to do here. Which, in saying that, I've answered the first question. Um, <laughs> who wrote this letter? Well, it was Paul. Um, when did he write it? Um, he wrote it in the years that he was in prison in his later life. He wrote a whole bunch of the, these epistles in the same time. They're referred to as the prison epistles. Kind of gives away some of the context of what Paul found himself in. He was imprisoned. Um, but we know that Timothy's mentioned here more as a co-worker than an author because Paul uses a heap of personal language like I, my. Like he says um, in the earlier bits, I always pray. Um, and then there's my used several times. You tend not to do that when there's two people because who, who is I and who is my when there's two of you? So we kind of know that Timothy was with him, working with him, but Paul was the one who did most, if not all, of the writing. So that answers who and when. Who was the audience? Well, as far as the audience goes, pretty clear the name of the, letter, the, name of the book in the Bible is Philippians. He says it in the first verse. It's the church in, or the people of Christ in Philippi. Um, so, what does Philippi mean? Where is that? Um, it's in Macedonia in the time here. It was a Roman colony, which meant a lot to them. Um, it was full of patriotism and things like that because it was exiled, so exiled and retired soldiers. Um, it was a real melting pot for the area because there was a lot of through roads which went to Macedonia and Asia. Um, it meant a lot to them that this was a Roman, like being Roman meant a lot to them. So, cool. So these questions are kind of easy to find out. You read them in the first verse there. The hard part was doing, you had to go do some research for this, which is, what do we know about Philippi? So as I said, it's a Roman colony populated by exiled and retired Roman soldiers. Um, it was often seen as a little Rome. And it was said in um, a whole bunch of the different things I found that you could see the fads of Rome kind of bleed into Philippi. So you'd see them over here, kind of like how you see, I don't know if it still happens as much, but I've noticed that you see a lot of things from the US bleed to Australia because we all watch the same media. It just seems like they're really, really fast at jumping on it. So, and that's what, so that's what we know about them. So, what we know about them is great to know, but what about Paul in relation to them? So, I was researching this question, what do we know about Paul in relation to Philippi? And someone came up with a quote trying to summarize the context of all of it. They tried to take the who, the when, the why, the how, and lump it up into one thing. And I really like the quote, so I'm going to share it with you. So, it says, It's difficult to outline Philippians because it's so personal and informal. Paul was talking to friends and trusted co-workers in Christ, his heart overflowed almost before his mind could organize the thoughts. In a wonderfully transparent way, this book reveals the heart of the, of the great apostle to the Gentiles. Paul felt joy in Christ in all circumstances and in service to the gospel. So, I didn't really, when I was reading through that, I didn't, the first time I didn't actually get anything super personal out of it. But then knowing that, I read through it again and you can kind of see it. So we'll come, we'll read the entire thing again once we've gone through all the information. So, what, how does Paul feel, why does Paul feel so attached to Philippi? Why is this such a place? He planted a whole bunch of churches throughout all of the, the known world, the area surrounding them. And, but he seems to talk to them differently to how he talks to the Colossians and all of the other people who he wrote the letters to in this time. So, 
we actually get a big picture of what happens when Paul goes to Philippi in Acts 16. Rather than reading through the entirety of Acts 16, I apologize, but I'm going to try and give you the Chris abbreviated version of this scripture. So, in Acts 16, we see Paul gets called. He's on his way somewhere else, and the Spirit calls him to go to Macedonia through a vision of a man in Macedonia. Um, We see Paul come here, convert a woman named Lydia, and then the next piece of scripture that we see sees Paul going to a prayer area, finding a lady who has a spirit in her that can help her to see the future. And then he, this happens for, and she keeps coming to him and saying that you are, you are followers of the Lord Most High. And she's saying things that would, to me, sound really good, but can also diminish what you're doing if there's someone constantly following you around saying things like that, especially when that person has a reputation as someone who may have a spirit, may be able to see the future. It can tarnish what you're doing and it would probably get annoying. I don't know how much that had to do with it, but in my opinion, that would get very annoying. Um, (laughs) But then, so we see this causes a big scene because Paul eventually heals her of having this spirit. And that sounds like a good thing, right? Paul does a healing. I'd be happy if Paul healed something about me. I can't see. I'd love it if someone just went bonk and I could see. But what the people who are surrounding and the owners of that particular person, person, or the people who are their boss of the servant, saw it as a problem because they used to sell her services being able to see the future. So they went, wait a minute, she's been healed. If she can't do that anymore, we can't make money. So they did what any person does in that sort of situation and they caused the scene. They caused a massive problem to the point where Paul and Silas got arrested. Now, Paul and Silas and the Christians in general had a bit of a reputation for prisons not working. Um... (laughs) Jesus had the reputation of being able to walk through angry crowds. Christians wound up getting the same sort of reputation where you'd be like, I swear we put them in there. How did they get out? So they're instructed to not only arrest these guys and put them in jail, but they're meant to put them like right in the center, in the hardest part for someone to break in or break out. And they're supposed to have their like feet shackled so they couldn't go even if the door was open. Now, this is where the cool bit comes in because it becomes a really incredible story where at around midnight, Paul and Silas are singing hymns and the walls start to shake. The earthquake, like there's an earthquake that shakes the building, opens the doors, and (laughs) loosens their shackles. Now that's already incredible, but I think the story continues in a really cool way too, because what we see is this poor jailer that's been told, you put them in there and you make sure they have to stay. You put them in the best place that we can keep them and make sure they cannot escape because we're tired of this. So he sees, he comes out and sees that the doors are open after the earthquake and goes, I'm in major trouble. Excuse me while I just, um, he decides he's actually going to end his own life, which is pretty sad. But before he gets the chance to, Paul calls out from in a cell, it's okay, we're still here. We didn't leave. So this sounds really weird because if a door opened, you'd think that someone, they would have left. But Paul uses this as an opportunity. He comes out and says, no, we didn't go. He comes out, checks on them, brings them out and asks, what do, I need to be, what do I need to do to be saved? This huge opportunity to leave and Paul is like, okay, I'm still going to further the kingdom of Christ by talking to this guy, by staying and helping him and sharing the testimony. So he then continues and says, um, he takes them, he washes their wounds. He ends up being baptized after coming to faith and then shares a meal with them and it's this really cool thing. They share a meal together and then the magistrate decides... We're not going to lock them up. That's it. Get them out of the city quietly. 
Paul and Silas kind of go, no, 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 we're, we're Roman and he beat us in the street without a trial, which was a bad thing for them because they were Roman citizens. And so they end up getting escorted out of the city by these people because that's the negotiation. He goes, no, 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 we, we don't want to go quietly. We want you to have to escort us out. So they're escorted out. Now, some of that sounds like a really bad story, like as in you see Paul get beaten and jailed and all these other things. But again, he says that this does still bring him joy because of all of the other things that happen surrounding him. You see, um, this made me think of that song Faithful Now where it talks about you sing um, songs of praise to break prison walls or shake prison walls. I can't remember which one it is and that's really embarrassing because I'm making a quote. Um, But that tells us a lot of how Paul had a really special experience here. It was an early day for planting churches. I think it was his second trip out and he planted an early church, so that bonds him to it. He'd had this really powerful experience with a jailer and with people in the town. He got kicked out. Probably happened to him more often than not, eventually. Um, <laughs> but So that's what we know about the relationship on the Paul end with the early days. But we also know that he, they kept him informed. They kept in contact with him since all, of these memory, since all of these memories, informing him of the church and even sending Epaphroditus, who we meet later. Hey, I got the name right, yes. <laughs> um, Epaphroditus who visits him while he's in prison and we hear about this that he's there while Paul is writing this letter um, so now that we've answered all the questions I know that was a lot we're going to take a second cool okay that's all sitting cool so we're going to read it again and I'm going to take some time to actually pause on some bits and talk them through so again we see Paul and Timothy servants of Christ Jesus who the letter's from to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons. So, not just written to one guy in Philippi, it's written to the whole church. They're supposed to share it with their deacons and their um, their deacons and their overseers. Cool. So it's meant for everybody. Awesome. Grace and peace be to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Pretty normal, pretty normal way to start a letter for Paul and any person in that day would be some sort of formalized greeting like that. Then we steep into what that first quote referred to as personal and informal. As he starts to say, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in Christ from the first day until now. Because he knows them. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. It's a very personalized message. We see this that he knows that they have a hard time with the, there's lots of different things going on in the culture surrounding them with arguments about different cultures coming to clash as people from the Asian continents interact with people from the Roman colonies and they don't like when they don't have their own culture being displayed, which makes sense. Um, but you see this in, he gives them the specific encouragement that he who, he says that they know and gives them the encouragement that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to, the, to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. He gives them the encouragement to come on, keep going. You've been doing well, let's keep going together. Pretty personal. Then, it is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. And whether am I, I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. That's, again, you see more informality, personal interaction between Paul and these people. He's saying, I love you guys. I love you guys as Christ loves 
and I, love, and I pass that love on. I think of you. I pray for you. You are in my heart. He, he knows these people. He shares a special bond with them. So I think that's what that context actually helped us see. Without the context, you'd be like, why is he being all sappy? He very rarely does this. This, doesn't even, this almost doesn't sound like Paul. What's going on? Did he let Timothy write the letter? Is Timothy more sappy than Paul? But no, it's actually Paul is going, I have this personal connection. And personal connection changes the way you communicate. I was having a very funny conversation after my last sermon with Rainer in the car about how I struggle and struggle with pacing. My brain goes so quick, my mouth tries to keep up, I stutter over words, and no one can understand. (laughs) And then I realized about 10 minutes into this conversation that me and Rainer had been continuing that we were kind of saying every word, but it was kind of every second word that was coming through clearly. But because of our personal understanding of one another, we were putting the puzzle pieces together. We didn't need, you know, every, we didn't need the proper pacing, the proper words, the phrase, you know what I meant, gets thrown around a lot. And again, you see this in this letter with this personal, it's still very well written, but it's very personal and less formal than Paul would go for. I think one of the verses that stood out in this section before I move on to the last bit, because that's where I'm going to stay for a while, is the being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Man, the amount of times that I look at life and go, yes, it's a journey, but I want to be there now. I don't know if you guys relate to this, but like, you have that point where you're like, okay, I want to be more Christ-like in this way. And you go, okay, I'm going to run at that real hard. And you're like, cool, I got there. I used to, and still struggle with the, now that you've gotten there, what's next? What do you do? Because I lose the context of the relationship briefly and go, no, 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 there always needs to be a next thing. It's a destination focus rather than this process that will continue until it is complete on the day of the Lord of Christ, the day of Christ. You see that it is, Matt always says it and he's not here, so I'm going to say it again, but it's a journey. (laughs) I really wanted to avoid saying it, but it fits. It is this process by which we live, we grow, and it will continue. He works with us, growing us and shaping us and molding us into the image of Christ and removing the things that aren't of him and as long as we're going on the road with him, he'll continue going on the road with us, helping us until, until we're done, until the race is run, until we're finished. And then his work is complete. So now I want to get on this last bit because this is the point that I think is actually really... I got hit really hard with this when I first read it. So, and it doesn't, it'll make sense why when I get to it. And this is my prayer that your love may, be, may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and, pra- to the glory and praise of God. It's a pretty cool prayer. It's a prayer that I think Paul prays for us, uh, prays for us as much as he would, the future Christians, as much as he would for the people specifically re- he's writing this letter to. So, I'm going to read it and I'm going to emphasize some words because I think that my first readover didn't give it to me, but when you read it and you actually take the time to think about how it's sitting, you'll understand more of what he's saying. So it's, and this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And then two, the glory and praise of God. Now, 
we see this structure. It starts with that your love may abound. The focus here is that your love may continue to abound. How would our love abound? Well, you grow in knowledge and your depth of insight. You continue to develop in your knowledge and love and insight towards God and those around you. Then, so that, what does it do? Yes, so that we may be able to discern what is best and may be pure, oh yes, and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. The only way that we can get anywhere near that is if we continue to do this. This is the outflow, this is the effect of the cause of us doing things. We continue to love, we continue to develop in these things, then we become closer to Christ and we end up being blameless because of the relationship we have with him. Why do we do it? To the glory and praise of God. So, that sums up the, what this verse is saying, but that's all good to say. Why is it? What does it matter? Well, it matters because of what it just said, so that we can continue to do these things for the glory and praise of God. But I think we get it wrong. I think so often we either remove the your love may abound and we get stuck in growing of insight and growing of knowledge and we lose sight of that love that we're supposed to have for Jesus. And you see this in, I've seen this in my own faith where You end up doing things and you end up begrudging doing things or you end up focusing on the fact that you are growing in knowledge and insight rather than focusing on I love God and therefore want to know him better. So it's one way. Again, all of these things I think we can do in the wrong order. Um, So that you may be able to discern what is best. Well, why bother gaining any form of knowledge if not to be able to discern and grow closer? Why learn so many things about God if not to draw closer to him? Again, it ends up being really frivolous. There's a whole bunch of people who I talked to. I talked to one of my friends about this and he's done a whole bunch of his own research as an atheist on this stuff. And he goes, yeah, but none of it matters. I'm like, of course it doesn't matter. You took the knowledge and didn't do the bit that he says to do, which is grow closer to him. All of this knowledge without growing in that relationship becomes redundant. You end up having head knowledge that doesn't transfer to heart. You don't feel it. You don't do it. And then you can do all of this for your own glory. You can do all of these things for your own praise. And that's another place where we get it wrong because it's actually so that we can give praise to him. Not only is this relationship so that we can give praise to him, but all that we do, the fact that I'm even standing up here now doing this, is because I want to give praise and focus to him. It's the whole point of what we do. We want to continue to grow so that we can do that better. You know, I think this verse, these verses, since realizing, since reading this again, even when I started prepping this sermon, has changed the way that I view almost everything that I do. And I didn't think that was possible eight years into faith. I know that doesn't sound like long to some people, but I had thought that I was on the correct path and I knew the right things to be able to do the right things because I knew the answer was to give glory to God and I did lots of these things in my own way at the best I could, but I've hit this point and again, he wasn't done the work he began in me because it's not the day of the Lord and I'm still here. Therefore, we need to grow. So, this changed it because love becomes the core. That part I think I kind of got I think I kept missing, I kept prioritizing that knowledge and depth of insight. And I think that is a real trap in today's world. You end up with people with questions that you want to answer, 
You end up with people who have pain that you want to be able to respond to. You want to have the perfect answer in the perfect time. And this is not what we're called to do. We're called to love. We're supposed to grow so that we... We're supposed to deepen our faith and deepen our love so that we can continue to be able to discern and know what the right thing to do is. don't have to have all the right answers for everything. You just have to be willing to trust in God for the bit where he will provide the answers you need. You need to be in relationship enough that he can speak to you and that you can hear him and that you have the knowledge and everything else to rest on and you grow in that as you continue. You're never done. Because I think that's something you see too. You see people, they get either complacent in their faith or they get so cemented in something that when something shakes one point of their worldview, it all comes crumbling down. And I think God does, I think there are some things that are bad that definitely shake our faith that he doesn't intend for the world, but there are some things where it's definitely him doing something because something needed to change. For me, he smacked me in the face with this verse and said, Chris, you're prioritizing knowledge and depth of insight over actually doing the love. You want to grow your brain, not actually help people. And that changes how you do what you do because it changes the why. So that's all good to say, but what do we do about it? We... We come to these things on a Sunday. We come to church on a Sunday. We come to these things throughout the week like Bible studies, like align groups, like meetings for coffee with people. And we pray together, we grow, and we keep that focus where it needs to be. This entire book, you see Paul in different ways going, I live like Christ. We need to live like Christ. He needs to be our focus. Here's some examples of how He uses Epaphroditus later. He uses Timothy later. But he's just telling people this exact prayer. He's saying, hey, here is some people who show their love and they let it abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that they may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless on the day of Christ. And they do it for the glory of God. This set of verses didn't have, like it had a lot of background information and I'm sorry if, There was a lot of that. Um, (laughs) But this point is something that really hits simply but deeply. And that was kind of where I wanted to end up for this. I wanted to give you all the challenge and myself the challenge to be able to go, okay, am I showing love first? Am I using my knowledge and my depth of insight to let my love grow? Am I doing this Is this, and one of the ways to test it is actually, am I getting better at discerning? Am I getting better at um, being pure and blameless? Am I growing towards Jesus? And then the biggest question is, am I doing it all for the glory of God? It's a really cool thing to actually get to reflect on on a new year. Because we've talked so much about putting the old year behind us and doing the new year and moving forward and new year, new me is a thing that gets thrown around so much on New Year's. I can't remember what the post said, but Max made a joke about... um, Uh, yesterday he shared a joke from 2016 where he said the weather forecast is jokes about I haven't done this thing since last year. Right? And that to me is really funny because it causes this point of you stop and you think. You stop, you pray, and you stop and give it back. And I think we need to do this daily, but a New Year's thing, a New Year's resolution almost is that you will do it more.
And New Year's is a really great point to do what we did just before and pray and reflect and grow. So I'm going to invite the team up as I pray because, um, yeah. So if you'll join me, that would be great. Dear Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you. I thank you that you are, you are a God of love. You're a God who not only tells us to love, but tells us how, tells us why, tells us what the effects are so that we can watch for it. God, we just, we come before you now and we reflect and we think whether we're doing this well. If there is a part of this that we need to do better, would you convict us? Would you tell us what that is so that we can go and grow deeper? God, if you are here telling us that we need to have a conversation when we do that, if you're here telling us that we need to, we're doing well and we need to keep going because the work's not done yet, then would we know that? Would we know that the work is not finished? Would we know that you're not leaving us until the day where the work is finished? But God, we do. We just thank you for the fact that we get to see this beautiful, personal insight into Paul's heart for this group of people who he knew so well. And we try and take that heart and emulate it for you. Amen.